you know, I think the greater hurdle that we had was that Africa and fashion were not words that were put together. So African fashion now kind of um, comes, you know, their books and their publications and there's exhibitions, these two words come together. But in the 1990s and early 2000, it was African garb, it was African dress, it was African adornment, but not African fashion. Welcome to the African Optimist podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gura, and on this show, I unearth the wealth of opportunities that exist across the continent and speak to the many inspiring people who are shaping its future. In the movie The Devil Wears Prada, the editor of fashion magazine Runway gives an intern the lecture of a lifetime because the intern dares to think she is not influenced by fashion trends at all. The scene is worth a watch and I'll put a link in the show notes because it makes the point that not only are we all influenced by fashion one way or another, we are influenced by fashion that is dictated by Paris, New York, Milan and London. Note, not by Johannesburg, Nairobi, Buenos Aires or Beijing. That, however, is starting to change, and in no small part thanks to people like our guest today, Erika de Grief, the co-founder of the African Fashion Research Institute, or AFRI for short. In 2023, Erika and partner Lesiba Mabitsela were named by Vogue Business Magazine as one of the globe's 100 next-gen entrepreneurs and agitators who are at the forefront of the fashion industry's overhaul and changing the way we view the future. In today's conversation, Erica shares her own journey in fashion, talks about white fashion in old museums, slow fashion around the world, and much, much more in between. If you want an insight into how global fashion is being redesigned, this episode is for you. Erica, you know what? When I was researching your life, your work, your writings, I came across the fact that in, I think, September 2023, that Vogue business, I think, nominated you or described you as one of a hundred influences in the category of entrepreneurs and agitators. And my first thought after having read quite a lot about you and your thinking was, I wonder what Erica thought about that accolade from Vogue, which arguably is the arbiter of Western fashion. So I wonder what you what you think about this accolade. Oh, thank you so much. Absolutely. It was in September um, 2023 we were nominated. So I'd like to then introduce Lesiba Mabetsela, who is the co-founder of the African Fashion Research Institute, in this as well. We really grappled with this idea that Vogue Business had nominated us as one of a hundred important individuals in, in 2023. I think it was such a surprise in a way for us that we got the award, considering that Vogue business is not our audience and yet we're being noticed. Um, and our work is really at such a sort of counterpoint to this, this question of like a universal thinking about fashion. So Lucifer and I really actually grappled with this question, thinking about, you know, should we even accept the award and what that would mean? Um, but I think more broadly, it starts to, to point in directions that maybe our work is being acknowledged and that this question of 
voices from various places or voices from various positionalities was being welcomed. So I think an important component that that notion of entrepreneurship and the, and the question of being an agitator in the space of fashion and what are those two things coming from Africa. So, yeah, I think a really a welcome shift in, in how we were being acknowledged as well. What, what is it that AFRI stands for? So what, what is being acknowledged about your work that is being mm. done through AFRI with mm. Lesiva? Mm. Mm. So the African Fashion Research Institute was founded in 2019. And so at four years into our journey, like what is it that we're doing and what is being recognized? And I think from the beginning in thinking about this as a research space or as a, as a platform, so how do we start to tell new narratives and how do we start to showcase um, and create opportunities for different kinds of knowledges or different kinds of stories to come through, particularly in thinking about design from, you know, from South, from South Africa and expanding beyond our own little borders into the rest of Africa. But but really in terms of kind of the award, thinking about this as a as an agitator, there were 25 of us as agitators, um, you know, disturbing the kind of singular narrative of what fashion is, um, where fashion comes from, and that fashion is from, from London, Paris, New York. And it all starts from there. In actual fact, maybe if we start to trouble that and if we start to expand that story, you know, we can start to create other kinds of opportunities. I think I started to understand your thinking when there was a description of you seeing fashion as a lens through which you can look, you know, it's a decolonizing tool and using fashion as one of many tools that one could use. As you're saying, tell different stories. I mean, you could have written a book, right? You could have used literature to also agitate or disrupt current thinking. I think fashion touches so many places that that cross between the self and society. It is this border space, this kind of border space of who you are internally, culturally, emotionally, personally, and how you're witnessed. I think growing up in South Africa during apartheid and then being able to navigate beyond that in post-apartheid South Africa, with all its work that needs to be done, fashion is quite a dynamic, both public and personal space. You know, how most people think, and certainly before I started reading, we think of fashion as being this one term for all dress, right? And soon it became clear to me that there was this fashion that is the West and as you were saying, comes out of London or Paris. And then the rest is kind of stuck in ethnographic museums. So although it's dress and it's, it could be fashion, it's not considered fashion. It's stuck in a museum. And that that's maybe what needs to be rethought and rewritten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the sort of colonial projects with colonizers who insisted on particular forms of fashioning social life. Um, and it's whose definitions of fashion are being upheld and where, and it's an economic 
space as well. So the question of um, what is valued and what is valued by whom. So it's rethinking or redirecting questions of ownership or questions of perception as well. Um, So spaces like media, spaces like museums, they're all kind of spaces that determine how that story is told. And fashion is a, yeah, as I said, I think it's a really intimate space that actually has been quite a violent tool across the world, sort of what happened not just in Africa, South Africa, but also in Australia and Canada, in South America, in Indonesia, in India. And so this ripple effect of violence through this, these material objects that, that are presented as frivolous or innocent, and yet they're not. And and then my own work to think about fashion as a kind of critical space. So can the same thing mean something else? It's that ambiguity, I suppose. Maybe it will be interesting to look at your journey, Erica, because you get the feeling there are layers and layers and layers of experiences that inform everything you write about and all exhibitions or projects that you touch. I'd love to start your journey quite early on, if you can tell us where you were born and how you grew up and how you perceive fashion and the world around you. I was born in 1968. Good year. Quite a good year, yes, for a disruptor. (laughs) Yes, exactly. My parents were Dutch. They'd come from from the Netherlands, but I was born in Natal. And we lived in a small village on the Natal South Coast. And we lived what would really be at the border of the village. And this was apartheid South Africa. So the village was a white village. And we lived on the road. It was a tarred road. And at the end of our, you know, just past our house, it became the dust road. And this was the border of the village between sort of the white village and then Black Township. You know, so we lived in that kind of sort of margin, that border space between sort of the village and then what was then more sort of homesteads, dotted homesteads, and and our route to school was on this dust road. So so really kind of as a child experiencing this duality uh, that there were visibly two worlds and, and navigating this space. And then I think my parents being quite radical thinkers for their time, sort of new age and thinkers of their time way before new age was a thing we didn't spend our holidays going to the city or going to europe like our colleagues or classmates might have done instead we would go for our holidays to the eastern cape which was then the trans sky or to botswana or to mozambique to these really very different ways in the world so coming back to school after your December holidays, what are you talking about? We were witnessing very different life worlds. And those were fashioned. People are fashioned. They are in the world within ways that make sense to them. And we spoke Dutch at home. Up until I was six, I didn't speak English. So there was also like a language difference. So growing up in what was quite a violent time in the 1970s in South Africa, but also just hyper-locally where we were living, 
and navigating those spaces of violence, I am also the other. I'm not separated from that. So this witness of a of apartheid and the violence enacted on other bodies was really formative in my growing up. And then fashion became a way in which to embody or dress with one's sort of political sensibilities. It was during that time sort of like multicultural, very hybrid, kind of crossover dressing. And music was one of the places that allowed for mixing. So kind of music concerts was the only place that allowed for kind of social mixing, cultural mixing. Mm. And I started to make clothes. Veronica is my twin sister, Veronica. Veronica and I started to make clothes. And we would buy fabrics from um, sort of shops in, in downtown Durban that were, yeah, culturally distinct. Not always African fabrics, sometimes tartan, sometimes Dutch wax print, um, sometimes... Um, velvet. So there's kind of like these, these sort of hybrid spaces where these would come together and have these conversations. Um, and so clothing became that place to be able to have that conversation about difference and sameness. Yeah, I think that's the entry point really that, that as a tool to, to be able to communicate with others through fashion. I, I then ended up studying fashion in Durban. It was 1985 to 1988. So you can imagine this was just right at the end of um, the apartheid era. And it was messy. It was messy. It was explosive. And yet there were these opportunities to navigate at the margins. Um, so I was making clothes. I was selling clothes at markets. Fashion allowed me to navigate those marginal spaces. Um, Maybe moving on to Lysoff and how you came to Joburg. I don't know when that happens because I think you said you studied in Durban, but then you landed up in Joburg. How did that happen? So I arrived in Johannesburg in 1990, literally just before the end of apartheid and the new democracy. And some very interesting sort of social spaces. I was then trading at flea markets, making clothes, being involved in kind of freelance opportunities around fashion and style. But in a way, I'm also an academic and I was always thinking and arguing about things. And so I then um, heard about a position at Lysoff or, or no, I didn't hear about a position. I presented myself as uh, somebody who would be interested to do a part-time um, teaching at Lysoff and teach history, history of fashion. I think my own experience of learning history of fashion, which, you know, the textbook just tells you there's only one way that, that fashion and in 1920 this happened and in 1960 this happened. And so for me, this is, there's a, a whole other narrative here that needs to come into the story. And so I presented myself that I would come and teach history or I was available and interested to teach history at Lysol. And they said, no, we've actually got another position that we'd like to employ you for. And so then I ended up teaching pattern making full time. But then I got all the other bits. So then I've got history and textiles and fashion media and fashion theory and fashion marketing. So I got all the other subjects. If you can maybe paint a picture when you first started, what did you find? You know, what, um, what 
what was fashion? What were you asked to teach? Because 1998, when I started at Lysov, literally four years into a new democracy. So I think this question of who was in the classroom and who was being addressed in the classroom was immediately clear to me that the entire institution spoke to a particular student who was privileged and had come through a particular educational pathway. We had in those first two or three years at Lysov a really, really interesting program with Botswana government and they funded students interested in studying fashion to come to Lysov. So we had quite a quite a large group of Botswana-based students. And so thinking in my classrooms, how did these students get addressed? How are these students heard? Because I saw what was happening. They were silenced in, in all the other subjects. They were you know, in design, they were being silenced, their aesthetics or their, their, their reference points weren't being acknowledged. So how do, how do I, in my courses, start to see them and for them to be seen and for them to be heard? So in second year, they would learn about the 20th century. I then thought, how do I bring personal projects or personal voices? So we work very much with personal narrative in, those, in that historic timeline. And it started to allow, again, this question of sameness and difference. My father in the 1960s, this is his photograph, but we're only now really seeing sort of Malik Sadibe or James Barner or these global kind of displays of photographs from Africa in the 1960s. But I was doing that in my classrooms. And then, and then the, the, the work that was being done by the students to think through these binaries of who had fashion in the textbook and who was excluded from the textbook. So really, really like very real ways in which you could include other voices. What was the response of the students, because I'm sure at the beginning you could almost put a line through the students. Mm -hmm. That boundary was very strict. Nobody knew anything about the other, really, in, in those times. Mm -hmm. And we forget yeah. that. And it's very recent. Um, what, what were the reactions to students when they started hearing about, you know, Botswana and families, look at Botswana and photos? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because also the South African students. I think even just this question of Afrikaans students or just Italian students living in South Africa or students from out of Johannesburg coming mm -hmm. into the classroom, black students. from uh, We had two students from Zimbabwe one year. Uh, we had students from... from Model C schools. So we're starting to sort of also see some Model C school students coming into the curriculum. And in terms of creating the spaces for local fashion vernaculars to start to, to develop, it was also 1998 that Fashion Week started, I think. So there were also these, this kind of idea of local brands, like what is South African? What are local brands? What is a local identity? What does local look like, think, feel like in fashion? What are the languages we're using? What are the terms we're using? So really encouraging that. And, and as an institution, that was not being addressed. So it was still all facing global north. The trends are coming from Paris and voices from the global north. So my work was in the classroom, but I was also head of department. So I was also able to encourage other lecturers to 
insert sort of multiple perspectives into the briefs, into the, you know, what is it that you're looking for? Can we broaden these definitions of fashion? Can we broaden these definitions of history? And what it did for the students. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, so Wanda Laforta was one of my students. Rich Manisi was one of my students. And obviously Tebe Magugo was one of my students. Super Ella was one of my students. And Roman Han was one of my first um, year students. And so my work at Lysop was really student-focused, thinking through, like, how do you nurture local talent? At the same time, I was also very aware that it is no use just me empowering the students and they go out into the world, but actually needing to change the narrative that was about those students or about the work of designers. And yeah, I made myself heard, maybe the word, made myself heard in international conferences. And there were calls for papers and I you know, and I recognized my privilege that I, I was committed to travel to these conferences, but in a way I was also able to save and then travel to these conferences. But because there was so little coming from the continent, it was, well, Erica de Hoof, she's she's writing and speaking about African fashion. We're really interested to know. And therefore Erica de Hoof was invited to the conference as a kind of lone voice representing quite critical thinking from these students and the work that was happening in fashion in South Africa. So I was very much aware that I was conduit. I was, I was able to bring information from one place to another place and start to, to trouble this idea that everything in Africa is print and pattern or everything in Africa is tribal. And I was the bridge in a way. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to say in terms of the stereotypes that persisted at that time about African fashion? Even maybe the first pushes of African fashion that were coming out. You know, I think the greater hurdle that we had was that Africa and fashion were not words that were put together. So African fashion now kind of um, comes, you know, their books and their publications and there's exhibitions, these two words come together. But in the 1990s and early 2000, it, it was African garb, it was African dress, it was African adornment, but not African fashion. And so that, that move to merge African sensibilities and whether those were African histories, drum or sapphire, you know, if you're talking about stone cherry, or whether they were colour sensibilities. Um, I'm sort of thinking of some of Black Coffee's early work, which really looked at the textiles, sort of unpacking sort of textile materials in really interesting ways that were situated in, in, in the livedness of Johannesburg. And inserting those into uh, uh, seasonal collections or into sort of ramps with models as a as a meeting point, um, because all of this really ultimately also is about like how do those designers survive? How do those designers sell what they're selling? And 
1998, 1999, with also um, um, Lux Culture, for example, um, streetwear. There were also some really interesting, the start of some interesting South African streetwear. And so mm. they would go into the stores in Rosebank and not find South African brands. And so they then presented their brand to the South African stores and the store owners were like, no, we don't stock South African brands. And then they got their friends to all rock up and say, oh, we're looking for, we're looking for Lux and Culture. Do you stock Lux and Culture? We're looking for Lux and Culture. Do you stock Lux and Culture? So how do you create that interest? And then slowly the stores started to stock Lux and Culture and the space opened in Durban, which is also South African designers. Yeah. YDE, I guess, this, as well. YDE, yes. Mm. And so this idea that fashion could be made and have a resonance to a local context. Yeah, which quite often in global trends doesn't translate. Yeah. So I think that was really the beginning, that beginning push. And I think the first exhibition was 2016. Fashion Cities Africa was in Brighton. That was the first time that an exhibition title brought the words sort of Africa and fashion together. And then publications also, and it's really only in the last 10 years that we have those two words together on, on the cover of a book. Looking at your, to continue your journey, um, how you moved out of uh, Lysof after being head of department there, um, I'm assuming you wrote a lot of articles, as we were saying, you influenced the curriculum. What was your next move? Did you move to Cape Town and start working on a PhD? Did you realize that your work can be far more meaningful as a non-lecturer going out into the space and becoming a disruptor? I mean, was that even a thought in your mind or what were you thinking about how you wanted to position yourself? Hindsight is one thing, but living it is another. Uh -huh. I was very aware that I was able to empower students in the classroom in very important ways, but that the environment that received those graduates was changing much more slowly. Um, so I think the real sort of push for me to leave Lysof was actually is Lysof the most effective place for me to make the change? Empowering students was one way to make the change, which we now sort of see down the line with successful graduates. But at what cost was that to them? A lot of them would enter into the world and then come crashing into an unchanged, you know, the media world was unchanged, the landscape for diversity and inclusivity just didn't exist. So this was 2013, I left. And if we think like Vogue, going back to Vogue, mm -hmm. and Edward Enenfield, he was appointed Vogue editor in 2017, 2018, um, five years after I was sort of saying there's, there was no diversity. And as the first black editor, it was that scale of erasure and exclusion that, that, that my students were, were stepping into. So... The PhD was really a way for me to think, how am I going to affect change? And one of the places that 
screams, it screams the binary of fashion and violence of fashion is in museums, and particularly South African museums, which have collections of Western dress that were owned by white South Africans and African dress that is not stored in a fashion collection but are part of the ethnographic collection. So there's a divide between sort of African dress and Western fashion inscribed in the discipline of the museum practice. So that was really my journey to my PhD was thinking about this was 20 years after um, the museums had merged in Cape Town. There was an Ethico Museum merged 13 of their smaller museums into, into Ezeco museums, and three of those museums had fashion collections. Um, one of them was the South African Museum, which was its ethnographic collection. The other was the Cultural History Museum, which was its Western fashion collection. And then the third was the Art Museum, which had objects of African adornment reframed as art, not as fashion, but still they were fashion objects. And so like these three collections had to come together in one storeroom and they don't speak to one another. They don't know what they, they're unable to undo the disciplinary silos that they come from. So my PhD was really trying to unpack how do you move beyond the violence of separation that still exists in those museum spaces. Just listening to you, it's, it's such a, perfect visual representation of everything that apartheid stood for, colonialism stood for, that separation and even that categorization. Um, how did you start going about thinking what to do with these collections? You know, the traditional museum approach would be create a timeline and then just put all the things that belong together in a particular time, put them together. And that means we representing all the different versions of dress that were there, and then we'll just call it, you know, the history of fashion in South Africa. It's so interesting that you use timeline as a reference because Western fashion is collected and classified and understood in this question of a timeline. So exactly. A jacket from the 1940s is different mm. to a jacket from the 1960s. Mm. The ethnographic collection is not collected according to a timeline. So a beaded... Ibeshu, for example, from um, Kozulu Natal, which is a beaded sort of apron, is collected as being from a place, not a time. There's no acknowledgement of this is from the 1940s or 1960s. There's a kind of generic 20th century or mid-20th century, but there's nuance in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. These nuances of time are not understood in the ethnographic collection. Um, and so that's the whole sort of violence of, you know, Western fashion changes, um, tradition doesn't change, etc. So it's very loaded. I I was very aware of what was happening internationally as well with quite a kind of dynamic shift in thinking about fashion exhibitions. And so it's a question of fashion curation to tell more contemporary or critical stories so there were a couple of um, of exhibitions that were happening you know, and, and fashion museums. There was a fashion museum that opened in Antwerp, the Molde Museum, that kind of stood out for doing some really 
important works. An exhibition called Beyond Desire was really quite groundbreaking as well. And thinking about can these museums in South Africa start to tell different stories? Can these collections unhook from the colonial past? Do these objects carry other possibilities? And in my PhD at UCT, I was very fortunate to be part of the archive and public culture research initiative and engaging in really important questions around archive. What does the archive do and what are the sort of possibilities or affordances within archives to start to listen differently to these archives um, as a means to tell different kinds of stories. So I had worked with my PhD with Ezekiel Museum, but before I left Johannesburg, I actually worked with Museum Africa. I had been asked to curate two exhibitions as part of SA Fashion Week, in which I was then able to access certain objects from the collections. And I went to the one side of the museum, which was the Western Fashion Collection, and got an object from there. And then I went to the other side of the museum, to the ethnographic department, and got a, an object there. And I put them into the same cabinet. And even that created a, a, a ripple amongst the conservators to sort of, you know, you can't put pieces from different collections into the same cabinet because they have different conservation requirements. They're both textile. But because I was an outside I was an outside curator, I was allowed to do this. So I was very aware of what Museum Africa carries as a collection. And if anybody knows Johannesburg, Museum Africa is literally in the middle of, of the Johannesburg CBD, or at the edge of the Johannesburg CBD in Fordsburg. And it has a collection of about 17,000 objects of Western dress collected by the Bernberg sisters throughout the 20th century. So a very big collection that the Museum Africa was then it was bequeathed to Museum Africa and as a museum of the city of Johannesburg, of an African city, how did they work with this collection, which is 99% drowning in its whiteness? Um, they also have an ethnographic collection at, at Museum Africa and so sort of thinking through, yeah, you know, this is, it's, this is not the only museum in Johannesburg, there's a museum in Pretoria that has the same sort of skewed collection. There's a museum in Bloemfontein that has the same skewed collection. Ezekiel Museum that I was busy with has the same skewed collection. Across the colonial world, the same skewed collections. And so thinking about does the museum just get rid of the collection because it's meaningless. It's, it doesn't make sense to keep these objects that belonged to the perpetrators of a lot of violence. How do you keep these objects? How do you then maintain this archive for whom and why? And so I'm working very closely with a designer called Wanda Lefoto. He's a designer who's part of a, a collective called The Sartists. And his work is looking at black fashion histories that were not recorded. In a way, the same way as Santa Mofa King and the Black Photo Album. But these black fashion 
archives that were not created. So these black fashion histories that are absent from the imagination. So this, this question of design, designer imagination is because there's this, these gaps. So Wanda's work has very much been about thinking about how do we fill those gaps in, in our imagination. Um, they don't exist in the textbooks. They don't exist in our own photo albums. Some of our own photo albums were burnt or some of our own photo albums were only like the wedding photo or the school photo, but, <clears throat> you know, the, the party or the playing, the, the party or the playing sport or the holiday. These kind of photos didn't enter into the photo albums in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s in South Africa. And so thinking about these objects in the museum collection, can they be re-articulated? Can their materiality be appropriated to tell different stories? And so um, Juan de la Foto and myself and another curator who's looking at this as part of her PhD, Addison Maloney, are sitting with this question of, of how to work with these contested collections in a way. And we hope to curate an exhibition um, together with some other South African designers to think through the space and the affordances of this collection. And, and, and maybe that's really an important point of my work is to think through how can this help heal the story? How can this, it's like the truth and reconciliation process, how can this help heal those absences or heal those erasures or retrospectively, retroactively contribute to a thickening of history? Just to stop you there, Erica, because I grew up visiting the that collection you're talking about. So for me, it's a very fond memory. We got a day off school. I loved clothes already then. I, I remember these Victorian dresses. You know, it was a very small museum. It was a very unique museum. For me, it was just, a, a, you know, a day out at school visiting something beautiful. Whereas I think it was Wanda in, your, in that article that said, I can see the beauty and the appreciation of the craftsmanship and how the clothes are not made the same way today and how beautiful that is. But I also see the trauma of mm. that. And mm. It, it's the first time where I really thought about it. I remember when Roads Must Fall, during Roads Must Fall, a lot of my friends were saying, well, why must the statue be removed completely? Why don't you just layer it with another layer of history? You know, it's the same question you're grappling with, I guess, with the collection. Why not just do away with the collection? Erase that hurt. Erase that trauma. And while I was reading, I kept on thinking, but how do you tell another story just with a dress. I couldn't imagine how you tell another story. So I don't know if you can give anything away because I know you're busy putting the collection together in a new way, but um, how is that possible? Yeah, you know, I'm just going to use an example of Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela. And I know that some of his shirts are around and they do end up on auctions and and they, as material objects, they, they were um, held and treasured and kept, not in museums. So I know that Ezekiel Museum tried to buy a Nelson Mandela shirt for their collection and really struggled. But I'm more curious, what happened to his suits from the 1940s? 
were those kept before he was the president and before, you know, in his early days as a lawyer, the suit that he wore. And before, I mean, Nelson Mandela was really clear about his sartorial choices in in what he wore when, um, the, the beaded collar that, that he wore. And the famous and photograph. Photo. But Winnie Mandela too, like what happened to her? She wore this beaut- this little black 60s suit. And then I think we're all familiar with that photograph of her on the stairs. She wears the collar, the beaded collar with it. But she's wearing a 1960s suit. That suit was not collected. Miriam McCabe, her dresses, you know, they're on the cover of the drum magazine. Mm. Those dresses were not collected. But very similar objects exist in Museum Africa's archive. Very similar objects. So can the object be delinked in some kind of way from its Eurocentric narrative and as a kind of mnemonic, as a kind of standing in for the thing that was not collected, but that kind of material memory um, to evoke the presence of. Um, the photograph demonstrates she was there and she did wear it, but the materiality of some, as you say, you walked into that exhibition at when it was in Zulek, at the Fashion Museum, and there's something about that materiality that's beautiful. Yeah. And that's what Wanda is also saying, is he remembers his father's suit from when he was a kid, but he knows the suit no longer exists. But rifling through the suits in the Museum Africa archive, he said, but he had a suit that was so similar to this. Finding his father in the collection is possible. I think I wrote another paper on my work at Zeitzmacher with the 21 years of making South African fashion histories. And it was an exhibition, again, sort of working with the materiality to be able to trigger memory and whose memory is being triggered and or whose memory is being um, made tangible. And there was a particular pair of trousers by Luxon Culture that referenced the Mblacelo, which is a beaded Zulu trouser, and it was absolutely clear how the black visitors could relate and, and gravitated to this one particular object in the collection, whereas your foreign visitors who had no access to this object's history or narrative kind of missed its meaning, kind of didn't hear it. They didn't hear it, but... Um, uh, the sort of black South African visitors to the exhibition and all the staff and the co-curators were, wow, my culture is being represented in this exhibition, in this museum. I mean, that, that answers another question that I had. You know, are museums becoming irrelevant overall? Because in a way, these old collections are become, going to become older and less relevant as new archives are built. And a lot of the new archives that are being built are actually digital archives. I mean, now anybody can create their own archive and, you know, it's a liberator in a way in terms of archive and in terms of um, documenting history as it unfolds now for future generations. So maybe, you know, European fashion would become less and less relevant in a way if it stays in museums, whereas 
everything that is happening at the moment in terms of global fashion, new movements is becoming more relevant because it's being documented. That's an irony in a way that these collections are hidden away. Only such a smidgen of these artifacts are actually ever put on display. So mm-hmm. in a way, they become less and less relevant over time, it seems to mm-hmm. me, with the world moving in a digital direction. Yeah, I think you, you're absolutely right. I think there's a real question around, is it relevant to occupy that much space? And is it relevant to continue holding on to these objects as kind of relics of a past? And in, in 50 years' time, how important is it to still be sitting with all of this stuff when in the face of great climate crisis or in the face of great evolutionary challenges that lie ahead, what is the value of these these items and these objects? Um, and is digital one of the routes to liberate the power holds? So I think I think the idea of these big museums as places of power, the VNA, the British Museum, the Pompidou, the you know the the, the, the House to Kunst, they are places that represent power, and particularly the kind of sort of colonial legacies of those places of power, and there is all those conversations. So, the digital is one kind of disruptor of that power of who owns history in a way. Yeah, I'm curious maybe to think about the kind of the potential for storytelling, for gathering, for coming together. I mean, if we think of like oral traditions that, that also over time, it's kind of the, the repertoire of, of where we've journeyed. Um, so maybe museums reimagined as places of coming together. Part of the, the work of curation is to think about different ways that public engage with the material and museums used to be the place where you go to learn about something whereas now you go to google to learn about that's right (laughs) exactly uh you don't go to museums to learn you go to museums for another kind of experience so so it's that it's reimagining the museum space I forgot to ask you in our initial discussion, I also didn't see much written about Zeitz, your time at Zeitz. You were a curator there. I'm not entirely sure what work you did there. And I don't know if you want to say anything before we move on to, you know, the future and what Mm. you and AFRI are going to be working on. I think after I finished my PhD, I was then a fashion curator at Zeitz in 2019 and that is where I worked together with Laciba Mabatsela. So that's where Laciba and I really came together in in thinking about what it means to curate fashion, to present fashion narrative to a public, to to articulate ideas through the work of fashion. And it was on that groundwork that we did at Science Marker that Laciba and I decided that we needed to found the African Fashion Research Institute as a platform, as a place that a really important space to gather and offer um, an environment for thinking about and with other fashion creatives. And this was just before COVID. So we opened in 2019. We founded the African Fashion Research Institute. And thinking, and interesting that you bring up the digital, and thinking through the digital as a really important means because in a way, we wanted to bring 
an exhibition that was happening in London, we wanted to bring it to the museum in Cape Town. But even bringing it to the museum in Cape Town, who would have access to that exhibition is only those who happened to be in Cape Town at the time. So this exhibition was in London and it was only on for three weeks. So really limited in terms of who could access it. And there were three designers from Africa featuring in this exhibition. It was the International Fashion Showcase. And three African designers. So each designer had a room in Somerset House that they then curated with their narrative. And there were designers from Chile, Vietnam, Italy, Colombia, the Netherlands. So really like an international fashion showcase. But it being shown in London meant... Only those in London can see it. So what Lesiba and I did is we worked together with, with someone who was able to capture the entire exhibition digitally. And Lesiba and a colleague, uh, King Debs, went to London and interviewed. So it was Tebe Magugu, South African Tebe Magugu, who won that International Fashion Showcase of that year. It was Ami Doshi Shah, who's a jewellery designer from Kenya, and it's Cedric Mizero from Rwanda. And so we digitized the entire collection and then anybody can visit. It's a 3D digital exhibition, so you can navigate the entire exhibition and visit the exhibition. So I think I've kind of touched on the importance of objects to tell different stories, but the other work with the African Fashion Research Institute for us has been about access. How do we make this accessible to a different kind of audience. So the digital is really an important space to make those stories accessible. And so colleagues or designers in Rwanda could visit the International Fashion Showcase online to see their colleague or Cedric Mizero's work. Um, so it shifts the dynamics of, of who the audience is and who gets to see this work and who gets to talk about it and who gets to experience it. So, I mean, I can I can talk about the fold as a, as a oh, Please do, yes, because it had me scratching my head because I saw your leaflet, but I couldn't make a lot of sense out of it. So, um, The focus of our work is to try and tell new stories and then to make these stories shareable or to bring a light to these stories. So we're not inventing necessarily things, sometimes it's bringing a light to something. And so at the beginning of 2023, we were granted a content commission for new narratives by the British Council. So we were given funding and invited to create um, three or so new narratives from the continent that could be shared to a British audience, but also to a global audience. So how do, we, how do we tell different kinds of stories? And we could work with fashion if we wanted to. And we wanted to thread this together so that these stories that we're trying to tell don't just happen as little isolated moments because there's lots of isolated moments. What, brings, what, what could bring it together? What kind of umbrella concept that we could start to develop to come back to that question of stereotype? How is African fashion understood globally. Oh, there's a few designers from Africa that do interesting mm. things, but otherwise the rest of Africa is. Um, so, And then how do we disrupt that? So so this idea of 
African fashion as being folded. So a lot of African fashion is folded. So not cuts and sewn, but folded head wrap or folded wrappers or the kikoi is folded or the kanga is wrapped and tied and folded. The bubu has these huge big folds. The kente cloth worn on the shoulder is folded. The basuta blanket has a kind of fold over the shoulder. So can we, on a material level, think about African fashion through this, that the lens of the fold? You know, so they folded garments. We often think that in Asia or in Japan or in the East, garments that are folded, like the kimono or the sari, or the, but that's something that's of the East, but actually it's also very African. And so thinking about it as a material item starts to bring along a whole set of names, a whole set of terms, a whole set of words that are not in the fashion dictionary. They don't exist in, in fashion terminology. And if they ever are, they're catalyzed and then quickly forgotten. So how do you start to bring, I mean, we speak about jodhpurs and we speak about kimonos and we speak about gilets and we speak about bloomers. But how do we get to speak about other items as a fashion language? So the first project that we did was a glossary, a gathering of words and terms and in different languages to to start to introduce these words into a lexicon, into a discourse. The fold is also this idea of what happens in the fold, what's tucked away in the fold, what's hidden in the fold, what happens when you unfold something, when you um, think about the fold as a kind of metaphor. And so we were quite interested in, and this was a, a research idea that Lesiva had been working on for a while, is that in Uganda, there is a, a textile, a bark cloth textile, which comes from a tree that is in Uganda and Tanzania and Kenya, even across to Nigeria, the bark cloth is used. But the same tree actually grows in Natal. It's a Ficus natalensis. And yet there's no bark cloth industry or bark cloth history that we know of. In, in Natal. So what happens at this crease line, at this fold, what sits in that crease line when we bring the tree that grows but does not come with a history of, of, of a textile history and this very rich tradition in Uganda and East Africa of bark cloth. And so really exploring when these two come together, what happens where they come together. So that's a really exciting project, coming together with botanists and designers and makers and different craftspeople. And in KwaZulu-Natal, there's a, a strong history of pleating leather in, in a, a garment called the Isidwaba. And this pleated leather is very similar to the bark cloth in Uganda, and yet one is vegetable fiber and the other is the animal what happens where they come together and meet. So that was our second fold research narrative. Like how does that start to tell a different pan-African, Afro-sustainability kind of story? And then the third one was the podcast. And, and, and so the podcast um, was looking at one of these folded garments um, that 
itself as a garment, how do we know about T-shirt? There are books on the T-shirt. There's studies. There's exhibitions. Mm. It's just T-shirt. But everybody has some kind of vague history, theory, thinking, sensibility around. But we don't have books on one single object, um, a, fa- a fashionable dress object in, in, in a South African context. So we looked at the ikriya, which is a headdress, which, you know, the perception is that it's just women who wear the headdress, but men also have worn the headdress. And the nuances, again, going into these nuances of its history, its transformations over time, because the ikriya from the 1950s is very, very different to the ikriya that then started to evolve in the 1960s when different kinds of textiles and different kinds of um, en- social engagements were, were introduced. Um, but really, it, it's an ongoing research process mm-hmm. of how do you circulate, how do you make this against the kind of onslaught of fast fashion and Western fashion, how do you push back with other fashion terms, values, principles, possibilities? that's exactly where I wanted us to go now because there is, I think it was termed a masterclass online and I will put a link in the show notes to this where you were speaking to a couple of designers and you were interrogating the concept of slow fashion. And I think you asked at the end of the masterclass, you asked, does slow fashion, does it work for us as African designers as African critical thinkers around fashion do we like the word slow fashion do we does it fit what we are doing here and I think you invited people to suggest alternative words people grappled with it I'm not sure if there is an alternative that has come about but I think the one designer raised a very interesting question Um, she said let us not get caught up in the idea of slow fashion being this romantic notion of being artisanal and people working away at their craft, but actually you can't survive. So how do we think about slow fashion in terms of a sustainable practice and not just this romantic notion of being anti-fast fashion, but actually not sustainable? The question of slow fashion and the question of sustainability, it's a much bigger question of the global north. And yeah, the global north as being the sort of the loudest voices pr- promoting sustainability and suddenly now having to take on this mantle of being green or environmentally friendly or conscious or, you know, my own practices as I, I ran a small CMT for a while in Johannesburg and we worked with designers. Designers were doing small runs. They weren't overproducing. Designers were using fabric. There was no the term dead stock fabric was just like, we've got some of this fabric left over from two seasons ago. It's still a very useful fabric. Let's work with it in this kind of way. You know, but the, the, this idea of working with offcuts or working with leftovers or working with or rethinking styles to think about the sustainability question was something that was completely intrinsic to processes of designers outside of the global north. So now for them to suddenly co-opt this word and sustainable and they're that leading edge, the leading voices in, in the sustainability conversation is alarming and frustrating and disappointing. And then this label of fast and slow fashion, I think I think where I'm kind of sitting with this again, well, dress and fashion, it's again, it's the binary. 
how dangerous this binary is just because it carves an either or. And so it's either slow or it's fast. And if it's slow, then it can't be what fast does at all. And if it's fast, it can't be what. But sometimes there's a lot more nuances in between. So Kevin Magugu would not call himself a slow fashion designer. His work considers some of the principles and the values that slow fashion designers adhere to or, or aspire to. So local manufacture and small design runs and made on order. So these, I would almost say that they're quite clumsy, these terms. Woolworths wouldn't call themselves a fast fashion brand, but every six months or every three months or every six weeks, there's new stock on their shelves. They're a fast fashion brand. They wouldn't call, you know, so it's these kind of very problematic big labels that that reproduce binaries that are, are not productive. All change is difficult. We know this, right? And to turn around a behemoth like the fashion industry that is probably, it's what, the second biggest polluter. We had a guest on episode three who spoke very eloquently about that. Um, you know, not only the problems with the industry, but the fact that even in South Africa and across Africa, people want U.S. brands. They don't want to buy local brands. They don't want to buy niche brands. They still want the Adidas. They want the big names, the Nike, the all of those big names. So how how is all of that going to shift the consumers to choose differently and push the industries even more to change their ways? And that is why I was saying at the beginning, Global Fashioning Assembly really makes me excited because I think the only way, rather than these pockets all around the global south doing their thing, it seems to me that there's a critical mass that is coming together to make this cha this change happen. And I don't know if Global Fashioning Assembly is that is going to be that space. It's probably going to happen in multiple spaces, but. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that, that there's a critical mass that still needs to develop in order to really turn the tide on where fashion is heading at the moment. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think all our efforts towards disruption and being the agitator is to loosen this like one direction of a fashion system, of a global fashion system, which is, as you said, rightfully said, it's an incredible polluter and it's incredible. Changes is messy and guarantees aren't really there. I think the planetary context of where the next 20 or 30 years will go in terms of political instability and also in terms of real kind of climate change, this idea that we can just continue producing at the rate that is currently being done is an illusion as well. Um, I think sort of decolonial work is also not just thinking about, and Rolando Vasquez talks about this quite a bit in terms of finding a voice and speaking back. And speaking back to the problem is really important. So activists and writers and journalists, etc., speaking back to the problem, pointing out what the problem is. But pointing out what the problem is, you are still expending an enormous amount of energy at the problem. 
so speaking back has a place, but speaking back is to also come back to speak. So the Global Fashioning Assembly is a project that as part of the research collective for decoloniality and fashion is to start identifying spaces, collectives of fashioning systems around the world that have been marginalized and by being marginalized, not being heard, not being listened to, not being given a space and to start to invest time and attention to these diverse fashioning systems to allow them to speak. So speaking back, speaking again about their own own processes, their own values, their own practices. So the Global Fashioning Assembly is a kind of response to the academic conference, like a fashion academic conference, which only allows certain voices in the room, but doesn't allow other voices in the room. So the Global Fashioning Assembly is saying, what happens when we create spaces to allow other kinds of voices to be present in the room? And so this Fashioning Assembly moves digitally. It moves from place to place. And so in 2022 was the first edition and we went from New Zealand to Kazakhstan to Pakistan to Kenya to South Africa to Croatia to Morocco to Ireland, I think it was, to North America, Brazil, Ghana, Peru. So mapped through different countries um, and allowing for each coalition to engage with an audience, with a global audience, around questions of fashion and whether that was making or was it, one was an exhibition, the other was a performance, the other one a performance lecture, the other one was an, a talk at a museum. So the, there were various different opportunities to listen in. Um, whether that's part of my work or part of the work that we need to do on this continent is to, to who we're listening to, who we're who we giving space to. And in the same way as the kind of fast fashion or the sort of big global brands, by giving them space in our wardrobes or by giving them space on you know, that's, that's what we're listening to in terms of our sensibilities. Um, can we start listening in elsewhere? Can we start having a different language? And it's only when we practice that language and when we practice that language with others that then starts to strengthen other world narratives. I think that leads me to the last question. You know, what would you like people to walk away with? What would you want people to really shift in terms of their thinking? Um, I think what is really important from this conversation is that healing is necessary and healing is slow and small. And so making these kinds of links between fashion and the world and particularly how we live in the world I think it's really necessary to think about them as small and slow. So sometimes it's like, how do I understand another person? How do I understand another item? How do I, what, how does it relate? 
being conscious. I think a mindfulness around around how our fashion connects us to others. That was an interview with African fashion researcher and critical thinker Erika de Grief. For more on her and her research institute, for show notes and a transcript of this episode, visit africanoptimist.co.za, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms or listen via our website. Thank you for spending time with us.